Hi everyone, welcome to Ortho Radio. I'm Nick Bertha, I'm one of the second year residents here at Hershey Medical Center. I'm here today with Dr. Matt Garner, one of our ortho trauma doctors. Today we're going to talk about geriatric hip fractures. Thanks for being with us here today, Dr. Garner. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you here. Geriatric hip fractures are a really common problem that we see both here at Hershey locally as well as throughout the entire United States. How often do you think that you see uh, geriatric hip fractures coming through your practice and through the hospital? So, as you said, it's one of the most common injuries that we encounter in general uh, in orthopedics. I, I would say, you know, how often you encounter it depends very much on where you work and, you know, how, how often you're on call. But for the most part, I would think here at Hershey, we'd, we see somewhere between 200 and 300 a year. And most uh, large facilities are probably in the same ballpark. Wow. So this is something that's really common. This is something that a lot of people are seeing a lot of on a pretty frequent basis. So when we talk about hip fractures, we're typically talking about intratrochanteric femur fractures and femoral neck fractures. These are both types of fractures that happen in the proximal aspect of the hip. As surgeons, I feel that this is often a fracture pattern that we see, and we always say, well, that's something that needs surgery. Can you explain why is that the case? Why is it that we always feel that these are fracture patterns that need surgical intervention and that can't typically be treated non-operatively? So for the most part, at least in when we're talking about geriatric hip fractures, so people who are, are on the older spectrum, the fracture itself is more of a representation of how the person is doing overall from a health standpoint. So the bone is weakened, uh, typically happens from a, a fall from standing or from what we call ground level, and it's an overall representation of, of someone's health. The idea behind surgery being that we do whatever we can to get that person out of bed and moving as quickly as possible because prolonged immobilization, so long, long periods of time in bed, can exacerbate existing medical conditions. For the most part, early mobilization has been shown to improve outcomes across the board with hip fractures. And the idea isn't necessarily that the, the injury needs surgery, but it's that the people need to be moving uh, as quickly as possible after the injury. Yeah, so I, I think that makes a lot of sense to get people back up and moving so that they can get back to doing what they need to to try to live the healthiest life that they can. Is there a patient population that you consider non-operative treatment for? Are there any specific indications that you have that you would say, hey, maybe this may not be someone that we want to fix this? So it's not uncommon to have a conversation about whether or not surgery is the best option for somebody. The times when we decide that it's not are often in, in the end-of-life stages, and in those situations we go for pain control as opposed to the risks of a surgical procedure. The rationale for that is, that, as I spoke earlier, mobility is, is the most important thing. The mortality rate or the death rate for non-operative management of a hip fracture, so treated non-operatively, is basically 100% within a month. Wow, it's kind of crazy to think that the mortality rate after hip fracture is that high, but I guess that makes sense that it's not really the fracture that's causing the mortality rate, but it's all the consequences of not being able to mobilize after the fracture leading to that. So if mobilization and getting people back up 
as fast as they can is an important aspect in these fractures. Is the timing to the surgery a critical aspect of this? Is this something that we need to get to in the middle of the night right here, right now? Or is this something that can wait a little bit of time? Or what's the actual timing indication for getting these fixed? Yeah, so the general thought is that earlier is better, provided it can be done safely. Um, that those, those statements carry a lot of baggage. The, the data out there would suggest that people tend to do better if they're done within 24 hours, certainly within 48 hours. The, the problem with that data is that those that wait longer than that often are more unhealthy, so they need more testing and things before surgery. But in general, um, earlier is considered better. Okay, so earlier is better, but the really important thing is that you're making sure that the patient is medically cleared, that they're stable, that everything is kind of tuned up so that when they go to the OR and they're in the best possible condition that they can be for the surgery. And that's probably a more important factor than just saying, hey, we need to do this immediately. Correct. So medical optimization would be the, the terminology we use. And beyond that, there's some suggestion out there that, you know, doing these surgeries in the middle of the night may not be the best option either. So, so again, I, I would, I would use the phrasing as soon as it can be done safely. Well, that's great. I think that's a really important piece of information uh, to take with us and utilize going forward. So I want to start talking about some of the treatments for femoral neck fractures specifically. So there's a couple different routes that you can go for the femoral neck fractures, including doing a pinning and putting some screws right up the femoral neck to hold things in place versus doing a total hip arthroplasty or doing a hemiarthroplasty or a, also known as a partial hip replacement. What factors play into why you choose one over the other and what population do you do each of these treatments for? Yeah, so there are, there are two different deciding factors. One is the injury itself, and the second is, is the patient. So there are injuries that, as, as you mentioned, can be treated with what we call percutaneous fixation, which means you, you kind of leave the bones where they are and you stabilize them with screws because the, the pattern is such that the bones are kind of squeezed together and unlikely to move. Once you get to the point of uh, having a displaced fracture where the pieces have actually moved for a variety of reasons, they, they're unable to be fixed, so we move to a version of a hip replacement. The term typically used is arthroplasty. The decision-making between a partial hip replacement or a complete hip replacement is based on patient, typically, and activity level, pre-existing arthritis. Partial hip replacement is where we replace the ball only and leave the socket in place. Total hip replacement is where the ball and the socket are both replaced. It's a bit more of an extensive procedure with some higher risks, so it's typically reserved for people who are healthier, more mobile, more active, whereas the partial hip replacement is a faster procedure with less blood loss and is, is oftentimes used for people who are a little bit on the more unhealthy side. Yeah, I think your point about having the active patients getting the total hip arthroplasty, as those would be the kind of patients that would get it in the joints world if they were just coming in with hip arthritis, the active ones would get that total replacement. Uh, so that makes sense to me. I know sometimes they talk about in joints literature uh, patients that uh, are demented are going to be at a higher risk of dislocating their hip, and sometimes they're more apt to do a a hip hemiarthroplasty in those scenarios to try to prevent those complications. Now, specifically, when we talk about the percutaneous pinning, 
I know that there's a higher rate of failure of that construct. Does that play into your role of decision-making when you're trying to decide whether or not someone should undergo that procedure? And how important is that failure rate? Yeah, you know, the conversion rate, so the, the most common reoperation for a failed percutaneous fixation would be a conversion to some form of a hip replacement. It's a little bit hard to tease that out. So statistically speaking, yes, that's the most common reason for revision. The question is, why did it happen? And and the most common reasons are the bones don't heal or they go on to what's called avascular necrosis, where the blood supply to the ball of the femur has been disrupted. Uh, some of that has to do with the upfront decision-making. There are times when a hip fracture that really should get an arthroplasty gets screw fixation, and maybe, maybe it should have been treated with an arthroplasty. The hard thing is knowing when that is. And my guess is, you know, a, a, a lot of those patients probably should have been treated with a hip replacement initially. But again, you know, that decision making can be very challenging up, up front. It definitely seems like that there are a lot of factors that play into that decision making. I guess that's a discussion that needs to happen between your surgeon and your patient and their family. All right, so moving on to the intratrochanteric fractures, uh, there are a couple different surgical options that we have. We most commonly talk about doing a dynamic hip screw or doing a cephalomedullary nail. When we talk about the dynamic hip screw specifically, uh, we talk about that being for a more stable fracture or more stable pattern of an intratrochanteric fracture. What exactly does that mean, Dr. Garner? What qualifies as a stable intratrochanteric fracture? Yeah, so the, the easiest way to think about it, so an intertrochanteric hip fracture is a break in the top part of the femur outside of the ball and, and the neck. Um, so if you think about the femur like a golf club, it's kind of where the shaft connects the head as, as opposed to actually at the head. These are patterns that because of the blood supply in the area have the potential to heal. So we we fix them in a way that the two bones can squeeze together and heal back together into one solid bone. A stable pattern is one that allows for that. So the bones are, the pieces are big enough that they can touch each other and squeeze against each other in a way that creates stability. An unstable pattern would be where there's an awful lot of pieces or the the pieces are broken in a certain way that even with the implants that we use, the pieces don't really squeeze together, which leads to a high rate of failure. So depending on if it's a stable or unstable pattern, it will push us in one direction or another on what type of implant would be an option for that patient. Okay, so when someone says that the fracture pattern is stable or unstable, it's not that it's a better or worse fracture to have. It just kind of helps guide the treatment and lets us know what it is that we need to do to give the fracture appropriate stability to allow it to heal. Correct. They're just they're just different versions of the same injury. So the other option is doing a nail. You can really do the nail for either pattern, whether it's stable or unstable. Now, when we talk about nails, though, there is short nails and long nails. Um, is there a reason why you would use one nail over the other? Yeah, I, I think done well. Uh, the results are very similar depending on the, the fracture pattern. There are times when if the break extends way down in, in the femur bone, you would want longer fixation. You would use a longer for times when you really want to shorten surgical time. 
uh, a shorter nail is a little bit faster with with less blood loss uh, and can be a a less involved uh, surgery. But again, I think you know experience is is important here, and and you know done well, I think either can work uh, very well in the majority of situations. I think it's pretty interesting that in both the femoral neck fractures and the intertrochanteric fractures, we have a way for both of those fractures to be able to be done faster than kind of the traditional methods in the femoral necks being doing a hemiarthroplasty or partial hip replacement, and in the intertrochanteric fractures being the short nail that you can get in fast, given that you have the correct fracture pattern for the uh, short nail to be used. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, a part of the decision-making before surgery is how much surgery can somebody tolerate and how much do we think is too much and, and trying to you know weigh the risks of surgery versus the benefits of what might be a, a longer surgical procedure. One thing that I've seen more uh, that's grown in popularity and that's kind of a newer uh, idea that's been using for nails specifically is doing this augmentation for the nails and being able to put in cement through the nail into the femoral head. Is that something that you're doing at all, or is that something you feel there's a good indication to be used for at this time? So I, I have, I've seen some of the research on it. It's not something I have experience with myself. The general idea is that the augment is, is a liquefied version of some type of, of calcium sulfate or phosphate or, or cement that strengthens the bone that has been weakened by osteoporosis and, and, you know, poor bone health, essentially. Um, I, I can't say that I've had enough experience to, to say if it's something worth doing or not. And I'm not sure that the data is clear on it yet, but in, in theory, it does seem to make sense to me. Yeah, I, I think it's a really cool concept. Uh, I think it would be interesting to see as the studies go on and we collect more research and data about it to see what kind of effect it has for patients and if it's something that is useful and becomes more mainstream or if we find that it's not all that helpful. I guess we'll see in time. All right, since we kind of talked about the different treatment options that we have for hip fractures, moving on into kind of the post-operative time frame, uh, what kind of restrictions do you place on these patients after they've had surgery? Is this something that you let them bear weight through immediately, or is it something that you limit their weight bearing for a period of time? Yeah, so the whole goal of the procedure, regardless of what you choose to do, is to mobilize. And, and in, in my personal experience, I, everybody is permitted to do whatever they can. So, um, you know, weight bears tolerated, meaning put all the weight on your leg if you're able to handle that. Um, no motion restrictions, no sitting restrictions, um, to really try to allow people to, to do whatever they're able to do as soon as the surgery is done. Okay. Uh, so for more post-operative stuff, what is the typical prognosis afterwards? How long are people staying in the hospital? I know you kind of touched upon the mortality rates uh, as well uh, previously, but could we kind of talk a little bit more about that kind of in the long run uh, as time goes out from the surgery? So, you know, in-hospital stay is so variable, it's really hard to put a number on, and it depends on the center and the patient and other medical issues and, and ability to have somebody leave to home or, or to rehab the, I would say in, in general, three to five days in the hospital, as long as things go reasonably well, with no, no nothing unexpected happening. Beyond that, you know, as far as mortality rates, so again, I think 
it's not the injury that results in mortality. It's it's overall health that results in the injury. So it, it's generally a, an indicator of, of somewhat poor health in general, not, not always, but often. And statistically speaking, the mortality rates at one year, now whether that's considered long-term or short-term, I, I don't know, but uh, the mortality rates at one year are typically quoted at around 26%. And that, that's been reproduced a number of times. And again, it's not the injury that creates that. It's all of the other medical issues that go along with the patient population. Yeah, I understand that's probably a challenge to kind of predict and that it's really going to be more of a patient-by-patient basis to kind of decide how long they actually end up needing to stay depending on uh, somewhat of their preoperative status. So kind of moving forward, uh, talking about kind of, again, more post-operative things. Uh, One of the things that we always talk about is hip fractures being a fragility-type fracture, uh, meaning that it happens because patients have poor bone quality. Do you ever place patients on vitamin D immediately after the surgery or uh, refer them to an osteoporosis clinic or their primary care doctor for an osteoporosis workup? I guess what I'm asking is how important is overall bone health in patients like this? Yeah, so by definition, somebody with a low-energy fall that has a hip fracture has osteoporosis. Uh, You don't need to have any advanced imaging. It's part of the definition of the diagnosis. So management of that is important. Uh, Here we tend to use our uh, osteoporosis and bone health clinic, which is staffed by one of our providers as well as uh, one one of our surgeons as well as one of our uh, nurse practitioners are very knowledgeable. We often use medications to try to strengthen bone. That could be anything from vitamins to medications that stop the breakdown of bone to medications that promote the buildup of bone. And And it depends on a number of factors which one we would decide to use. Yeah, you know, I think that the work with the osteoporosis is really an important factor that goes into uh, these patients' care afterwards, and that being able to kind of get them on something to help prevent this happening in the future is really important, and I feel sometimes gets overlooked in uh, overall patients' care, so I definitely think that that's important to keep an eye on. Uh, I think another common question that people ask is, is there something that myself or my loved one can do in the future moving forward to try to prevent this kind of fracture from happening again on the other side? Uh, is there anything that you tell your patients moving forward uh, to try to get them into the best possible uh, place so that they don't have this kind of thing happen again? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, is there anything to prevent it? Well, bone health is is number one and mobility and balance and... and um, any type of physical exercise that can be done, be you know, to pre- the, ahead of time would help prevent injury. Weight bearing exercise, in particular, has been shown to improve bone health. Speaking to your primary care doctor about bone health is going to be important. Uh, but honestly, just being safe is is the most important thing. So, checking around your house for rugs that uh, could could cause you to trip and fall, or or uneven areas between a uh, hardwood floor or linoleum floor and, and carpet, uh, using a cane when it becomes appropriate. Um, a lot of people don't want to use assisted devices, but canes and walkers can be lifesavers. And, you know, going to the gym and, and, and working out, and, and those are things that help with balance and gait and proprioception, which is our body's ability to recognize where it is in space are all things that help prevent falls, which would help prevent these types of injuries from happening. 
those are all fantastic points of ways to try to prevent this from happening. I, I think that those are definitely things people should keep an eye out for so that they can try to make their home and then their environment as safe as possible and try to get them uh, as mobile as possible and as strong as possible to keep healthy. Well, I think that's a lot of great information that we kind of talked about here today uh, for patients that have hip fractures. Uh, I just kind of wanted to open it up to you, Dr. Garner. Is there anything else that you'd like to kind of say in regards to hip fractures? There, there's a lot that goes into this, uh, so just please feel free to, to be open-minded and, and ask questions. Awesome. Well, thanks, Dr. Garner. I appreciate you taking the time today and sitting down and talking with us about this. Well, thank you. Please feel free to email us at orthoradio.nick at gmail.com with any comments or suggestions moving forward. Uh, we appreciate any feedback. Thanks again for listening. It's been a pleasure. Bye.